one. I think at the time we both found each other and we both needed to invest into each other and he got that result and then that changed everything because then he was a an outside chance of making the Olympic Games and you know he had always dreamed of making the Olympic Games but he'd never been in a position where it could become a reality and it reminded me of where I was you know like I dreamed of it and trying to make it a reality is a completely different um, a different ball game so Welcome listeners to this episode 21 of the Running Guide podcast, where I aim to provide informative content and interviews with elite athletes from around the world, like in today's episode, where I'm chatting to one of the finest distance runners Australia's ever produced, competing at three consecutive Olympic Games in the marathon distance, Sydney, Athens, and Beijing, and being the man that finally took out the great late Ron Clark's 5,000 metre national record that stood for 33 years when he ran 13, 14, 82 at Olympic Park, Melbourne, back in 99. Welcome to the Running Guide podcast, all the way from Boulder, Colorado, Lee Troop. How are you going, mate? Thanks. Oh, great, mate. Thanks for having me. Ah, oh, that's no, fantastic, mate. Well, I've been looking at the weather over there, mate. I'm in cold, frozen Canberra at the moment, and you guys are getting some mid-30-degree days. I wouldn't mind some yep. of those, yeah? No, it's been, uh, it's been great. So uh, the weather's been uh, really hot in this, uh, in this last week. Um, but, yeah, no complaints at all. Yeah, for sure, because you know you guys are sitting at what sixteen hundred meters there, and it still gets to the to the mid thirties. Yep, the summer is uh, hot. We can have it. Uh, we had it at thirty six uh, the other day, so it uh, yeah can get extremely warm. Yeah, right. Do you ever get a forty degree day there, or? Uh, we had a couple that have gone close, um, yep. but yeah, uh, being as high up as as what we are, yep. um, it's uncharacteristic. But you you could. Yeah, sure, sure. And what 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 about the coldest day in winter? How cold does it get? Uh, it gets down into the minus. So um, it can be, you know, as low as, you know, seven, zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, going to be like minus, minus uh, 10, 12 or so forth. But um, I don't get out a lot in the winter unless I've got a coach. Um, and then in the summer, I try to get out as much as I can. And then in the spring and the fall, the weather, you know, it's usually pretty good. It's uh, anywhere between like 20 and 25 degrees. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, look, I'm pretty pretty uh, eager to chat about the present and future, but uh, sticking with the um, usual opening routine uh, to get the listeners up to scratch uh, with your running history, I'll just sort of run through your PBs, and if you can sort of fill us in on um, any sort of standout memories you have uh, surrounding these events. Yep. Right. Yeah. So we'll head back to um, '98 in Darwin, mate. You ran 3:50:20 for the 1500 meters. Yeah, I've run 346.1, um, and I ran that at a uh, – it used to be an old Melbourne interclub A-grade meet that they used to have on a Thursday night uh, in November, sort of late October, November, leading into the Zatapec. Um, and I think I did that in 1996 or 1997. Okay, yep, yep. I mean, the IWF profiles aren't always accurate, are they? That's why we've got to run through them. They probably hadn't heard of Australia at that stage. For sure, for sure. Um, all righty, yeah, 3,000 metres, 741.78 uh, in 1999 in Sydney. Yep, that was uh, taking on Lucas Kipkoskai and Ben Mayo and finished uh, fourth. I got pegged 
uh, on the line by a guy called Brian Wilson. Um, Mona come racing out on the track and told me that I'd broken Sean Crichton's Australian record, uh, which I replied to, what is the Australian record? I had no idea. And uh, at that stage, I'd missed it by um, one-tenth of a second. Okay, right, yeah. Wow. That's all. And Sean wasn't there that night? Uh, no, he wasn't. Okay, awesome. Uh, 5,000 metres, uh, 13-14-82. Now, this is, uh, this is a special night, uh, referring back to the intro when you broke uh, Ron Clark's uh, record. Uh, you beat it by, by two seconds there. And when, when Ron ran that 13-16 in Stockholm, that was also a world record back in 1966. So 13-14-82, uh, and that, that was a big step up from what you'd ran previously. Is that correct? Uh, it was. I'd run 13.36, 13.37. I might have run a 32. I, I can't recall, but I certainly hadn't been in the uh, in the 20s. And uh, again, we had Ben Mayo and Lucas Kipkoski. Uh, Lucas Kipkoski was number two in the world. Ben Mayo was number four in the world. Uh, we had perfect uh, pace setting by Graham Hood from Canada. And uh, we were just clicking off uh, 63s. Uh, we went through... 3K around about 7.57, 7.58. And this was only um, probably five days to a week after I'd run 7.41. So the pace had felt really uh, slow to me. And so I tried to take the lead with five laps to go. Uh, Lucas wouldn't have a bar of it. Uh, Then tried to take the lead with 700 to go. Again, Lucas wouldn't have a bar of it. And uh, I was able to hold on to him until about 180, 200 metres to go. And uh, he blew my car doors off. Um, and I crossed the line uh, knowing that I'd broken Clarkie's record. And um, still to this day, um, probably one of the proudest sporting moments I have. Yeah, I bet. I bet. That would have been fantastic. Did uh, did you get to speak to Ron? Ron was, yeah, no, Ron was still with us then. Did you get to speak to Ron Clark after that? I became very good friends with Ron after that. Uh, I got a phone call from Ron uh, the next morning congratulating me on the performance. Uh, then I started doing a few things with Ron. He was uh, the mayor of, uh, of the Gold Coast at the time and they had Runaway Bay, so I'd spent a bit of time up there. Got to know him a lot uh, in 99 when we went up there for a training camp leading into, um, you know, hopefully what we were going to do in 2000 uh, up at Runaway Bay. Um and then I started a track race in 2005 in Geelong, which was known as the Ron Clark Classic, which was to celebrate the 40th anniversary of when Ron Clark broke the world 20K and world one-hour mark uh, down in Geelong. And I had John Landy and uh, Ron Clark. I had the Minister of Sport at the time, Justin Madden. We had Mona. Mona broke the world record for over 40s. Uh, Robert DiCostello, Pat Carroll. Um, so, yeah, I got to, to know Ron very well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, look, 10,000 metres. Now, this is PB over there in Inglewood, New Zealand, 27-51-27 in 2003. That was the Kiwi National Championships. Now, that that also reminded me of a former guest of the show, Jonathan White. Now, he also ran his PB there. He ran five seconds behind you in 27-56. Now, now, first of all, let's talk about that event, and then I can see that you would have come across Jonathan White a fair bit in your running career. Did you sort of uh, get to know him as a mate? or? Yeah, I did. Um, Jonathan was on numerous teams, World Cross Country, Commonwealth Games. Uh, also did some training with him in Boulder, Colorado in 2002. Um, and then he obviously, towards the end of his uh, running career, then uh, transferred across to mountain running. Uh, that night, uh, there was Brett Cartwright and Dean Cavuto, 
and myself, uh, I wanted to run 27.30. And so we were going to have a young kid called Reese Buck that was going to take us through for 66 seconds per lap to run 27.30. After about four laps, we weren't quite on. Um, so then I went to the front. We'd agreed that we'd do uh, two laps each. Um, I remember I did my, my front stint and then Dean did his and then Brett did his and then I went back and then it started to string out a little bit from that point. And then um, I remember taking off with about 700 metres to go. Uh, and this was all in preparation for uh, Lake Biwa Marathon that I was doing in two weeks' time. And I ended up coming away with the win in 27.51. Dean Cavuto uh, might have been a couple of seconds back who'd come uh, flying uh, through for second. And then Jonathan might have been third in that race. I, I can't recall. But um, it set me up fantastically for Lake Beaver in two weeks' time. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And we'll get to that. Um, all right, now your 5K road PB isn't that impressive considering uh, the ability uh, that you had as a runner. So that's down as 14.23 up there in the Noosa Bolt no 05. But I'm sure you've running quicker than that. Why... Um, there must be a faster... Run much faster. Yeah. Well, world athletics, I mean, at the end of the day, we have a lot of races in Australia, and it's whether uh, those times are submitted in through Athletics Australia and then gotcha. onto the World Athletics Database. Okay. Um, but I see that time all the... Not my time, but I see this time and time again when I'm doing profiles for athletes and I'll extrapolate all the results off World Athletics and they're not even close to what sure. athletes have run. That's so uh, World Athletics Database is not current and not up to date. Yeah, yeah, sure, for sure. Mate, your 10K, 28.51 down there at Springvale, Melbourne. Yep, uh, I've run 28.30 uh, for 10K on the road. So, but I have that 28.51, which I think is for Sandown, was actually on a short course. Uh, so we didn't find out until a couple of weeks after that it was actually on a uh, on a short course. So... I think it was really probably around about 29.05 on, on that particular day. And I remember holding off a, uh, a very young Michael Shelley uh, on that particular day down at the Sandown race course. Okay, yeah, for sure. Um, but he'd run 30-odd um, in uh, Wales way back in, uh, again, like 99. Yep, yep, okay. Um, look, your half marathon PB, 61 flat. Um, over there in Tokyo, 99. Tell us about that. That's moving. I'm pretty sure it was 60.58, and I still to this oh, day argue 60.58. <laughs> definitely um, take it. <laughs> we went through the first um, 5K extremely slow. It was a big pack of about 30 guys, and it was like 15.20. Um, and I was getting quite antsy because I knew I was in, in great shape. I was also prepared for what used to be uh, the marathon course, which was the first half of the Tokyo Marathon, which was all downhill. Uh, Mona's run 60.06, Darren Wilson's run 60.02. So I was really looking forward to be able to run roughly what they had run to 60.30. And when I got there, they changed the course um, because the year before, Alana Meyer was leading the women's race. And what had happened was they let all the men through and then they decided to start stopping what they believed to be the fun runner component of the race so they could let cars uh, pass. And Alana Meyer was leading the women's race and she got held up in the fun running group. And then all of a sudden, all the lead women caught her. And so by the time um, the police had let them through, uh, Alana still went on to win, but it had changed the dynamics of the race. So they moved the race out to a place called Rainbow Town, and it was an out-and-back course, but we had to cross over a number of little bridges 
that would open up to let boats through. So um, I was disappointed we didn't get to run the same course so I could compare myself to uh, Darren Wilson and Mona. But in the race, you know, you're still racing for a time and also for a place. And as I said, we were 15-20 through the first 5K. Uh, we started to pick it up a little bit, um, but we were 29-22 through 10K. Uh, I took the lead at around about 13 kilometres um, and I ended up running my last 10K in 28.34, my last 5K in 14.09, uh, only to get pipped by a young Japanese Kenyan uh, by about two seconds uh, in the closing stages. Uh, but there was Moses Tanui there who was at the end of his career, which was fantastic to, to race him and um, Arturio Barrios from Mexico who was a world record holder for uh, for 10k uh, back in the uh, in the uh, late 80s. So uh, for me, that again was another uh, breakout race um, for me that uh, was setting me up for London Marathon, which was to be my debut later in April. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And obviously, those splits you just read out were, were, were motoring. Did you did you feel that you were just having an awesome day that day? Yeah, I felt. Um, I mean, it's easy to say, like, when you have great races, you feel invincible. Yeah. Uh, for me at that stage, you know, I was in an international race. I, you know, it was the first time that I actually was able to flick the switch mentally to truly believe that I belong there. Um, you know, and, and that was really off the back of the Commonwealth Games in 98. I didn't have a great Commonwealth Games in 98. Uh, you know, I finished um, fifth, sixth in, no, seventh in the 10K and then sixth in the 5K. Um, I went over there with, with greater aspirations, but... I was just a little green behind the ears and I really wasn't mentally prepared for the, um, the the different racing style when it come to championship racing. So I'd spent a lot of time at Falls Creek, uh, November, December, really preparing for what I wanted to be, which was a great 99. And uh, going to Tokyo, I stood on the start line and it was pretty much a mantra of just like no regrets, like you've really got to make the most of you know your opportunities. And I ran the race um really attacking it from about 13, 14 kilometres. And I just kept winding it up and winding it up and winding it up. And I knew I was in great shape at Falls Creek. Like I'd broken a lot of um, Falls Creek records, which are, you don't get medals or certificates, but, you know, those that do a lot of the training up there know the relevance of a lot of the workouts that we do. So I just took that um, confidence and positivity to Japan. And um, I was also there with uh, with Kara McCann, so it's always great to be with a, a fellow Australian, and uh, we just yeah, got there and ripped it up and, and had a great day. Yeah, I'll, I'll certainly talk more about your year of uh, 99, because it was a, a golden year in your period, um, which I'm sure you might you may agree with me there, but yeah, it was a great year, but I'm going to talk further about that. But moving on to your marathon PB, um, Lake Biwa, 03, 2003, you ran 209.49. Now that's... Uh, that just came off uh, a race that we talked about um, at Inglewood in New Zealand two yep. weeks before, yep. around 27.51. Yep. I knew I was in great shape. Um, you know, I went there wanting to uh, run fast. Uh, I honestly thought I could run sub uh, 2.9. Um, 2.8 on a good day, but 2.09 was what I was hoping for. Monaghetti was, uh, was one of the pacemakers and... We were just clicking off three-minute Ks, um, so we went through 5K in 15 minutes and 10K in 30, and, you know, we went through halfway in 63, 50-something, and I, I just felt a million dollars, and 
I remember we got to 30k and Mona pulled out and uh, I said to him, um, I said, Deke's record's going down. I, I felt awesome. Uh, then about 34, 35k, I got hit by a truck and uh, the wheels started to come off and uh, I ended up running 2.949. But the first 30, you know, 33, 34 kilometres of that race, uh, I was certainly on 2.08 pace and, and having a great day. Uh, just got into that last five miles, the last eight kilometres where that's where the race can, can turn on you and I just then started to grind and really dig deep and uh, just to try and hold it together to break uh, 210. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, that's your PBs. Let's go back to where they started. Now, I sort of read you started running with, with your old man, with your father, uh, around the block with his mates. He's trying to lose a few a few Ks to get fit. And uh, and then obviously you uh, enjoyed running. What did you actually find back in those early days when you first started running that sort of grabbed your attention? Uh, primarily, I think the thing that I loved the most was I got to run with my dad. I mean, yep. those that have a relationship with their mothers or their fathers, you want to emulate them. And my dad wanted to get into running to lose weight. And at the time, De Costello was the household name. And my dad uh, idolised him. I remember Commonwealth Games 82 and then LA um, 84 and Commonwealth Games again in 86. And my dad bought all the books, train like Deke, race like Deke, eat like Deke. And, um, you know, that's what my dad wanted to do. So I used to come home from school and when my dad got home from work, we would go out and run around our local uh, estate block, which was about three kilometres. And you know, that led to things that we were doing at primary school, such as the Life Be In It program, where for every kilometre you ran, you got a certificate, and I like to accumulate the certificate, so I would run morning uh, before school, and then at lunchtime, and then with my dad after school, and I just, I loved it. I played uh, Aussie Rules football, and I played cricket, and I played basketball, and I did karate, and I did all these things, but running just seemed to be the sport that spoke to me the most, that I enjoyed, and my dad was pretty tough. You know, I couldn't just turn up to a fun run unless I'd actually trained for it. Um, my dad was all about that, you know, in order for you to enjoy the benefits of something, you need to actually do the training and put in the work. So if I didn't put in the work, my dad wouldn't let me run. So I would train with him as often as I could. And I ran um, primary school sports. I, I wasn't that great. Uh, but then we got to high school and I, I ran through high school. And again, I played high school sports, but the sport that spoke to me the most was running and you know I was great at year seven at a local level but I certainly wasn't at a state level and just each year I just kept setting the the, the benchmark that I had to improve on the previous year so from year seven where I was a, a good local runner in Geelong so then all of a sudden by the time I got to year 12 you know winning my local uh, region winning the western region winning the state championships and then winning the national schoolboys championships uh, I finished second overall in the Australian Under-20 Championships to Brett Cartwright. Um, it was just something that, as I said, I, I enjoyed. I didn't get injured. Uh, getting out there and training hard wasn't foreign to me. And uh, the results came over time, which, um, you know, if I look back on my career, I certainly wouldn't have been able to have had the success that I had if it hadn't have been for those very early formative and junior years of enjoying a sport and continuing to do the sport because I loved it. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. No, that's so important. Yeah, it's great. Um, and obviously that talent was recognised because you um, were picked up and you went over to the States there and did a college scholarship over there in South Plains College over there in Texas. So how old were you when you went over there? Uh, so I was 18, uh, going on 19, so I'd graduated 
Um, it was only a junior college. Uh, okay. I'd been asked to go to a number of um, NCAA Division One schools, and I was going to go. I wasn't going to go, and then uh, I got to a point where uh, I decided um, that I was going to go. And by the time that decision was made, uh, my scholarship had already gone. Uh, you have to do SATs. My SAT score wasn't that great. So it was just like, why don't you go to a junior college, uh, do that for a couple of years, and then you can make a decision uh, which college you want to go to. And I didn't know the difference between NCAA, NJCAA, which is National Junior College Association, NAI. Um, I thought that everything in America was like Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, I live in Geelong, so I flew all the way over there with my surfboard. Uh, unbeknownst to me that my school was in the panhandle of Texas with the closest ocean about eight hours away. So it was a, a rude awakening uh, getting over there. But just like my junior career uh, where, you know, I followed my dad and, you know, idolised my dad, I had a great coach who had coached a number of outstanding athletes, Brian Sheriff from Tanzania and um, Philemon Hannick from Zimbabwe. And I, um, yeah, bought into his program. There were a number of uh, athletes from Kenya, um, Tanzania, uh, Morocco, and we got to race some of the best schools in the country. So um, a lot of people think NCAA is the premier um, division, which it is, but NAI actually have the better athletes. They have more African athletes in that division. And um, so I got to race some of the best athletes in the country. And I wasn't that great in my first race, but uh, through the, the belief of my coach and, you know, just that desire to improve on performance after performance, I got better and I ended up uh, being a, a five-time uh, All-American, uh, again, at National Junior College. I don't want to sell myself that, um, you know, I'm smarter than what I am, but I got to race the best athletes uh, in the country and, uh, you know, I got the, the nickname, the, the White Kenyan, and uh, I just thrived on, on racing uh, the African athletes and it got the best out of me. And after a couple of years, I decided um, that I didn't want to do the uh, NCAA Division I um, uh, division. Uh, I had uh, scholarship offers from um, Arkansas, which was the best college at the time, um, University of Texas at uh, San Antonio. Um, I just yeah wanted to come home. Uh, this was at the end of 94 the start of 95 because I thought I could be an outside chance of making the Atlanta Olympics. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so you were you were just running track there. Were you doing any cross-country running at that stage in the States? or? Yeah, cross-country, track and road. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was pretty fortunate to, uh, to win a few road races and uh, race a number of track races and cross-country races. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And you fit into the system fine? Yeah. Uh, no, not really. I don't think the system was designed for a kid at 18, 19 from Geelong that uh, liked to go out and liked to drink and liked to party and liked to, uh, you know, be the, the life of the party, so to speak. Uh, you know, lived hard, trained hard, raced hard. And uh, I got to poor old Lubbock, Texas, or Leverland, Texas, outside of Lubbock. And mm. it's in the Bible Belt. Um, you can't drink till you're 21. Uh, there's no bars there's no pubs um it's a pretty regimented small little town so hence my desire after a couple of years to come home to uh back to australia and and race in australia and see if i could make some australian teams but in saying that the opportunity to be in a foreign place uh and to be in an environment that was extremely foreign um was extremely difficult uh you get over there and of course everyone wants to be friends with an aussie 
but you sort of realise after your first couple of goes that a lot of the people that want to be your friends and befriend you aren't going to be the, the friends that you end up with at the end of your time there. So it was a, a tough transition to learn how to cope on my own with no family, no friends. As I said, in a extremely remote part of America, way up in the panhandle of Texas. But, but I think that also hardened me up to be a, a great international athlete so that when I did travel, you know, having dealt with the hardships of being in a small town on my own, travelling to all these European places, I was able to, to deal with it like water off a duck's back. I, you know, it became second nature to me and I didn't find those hardships nowhere near as difficult um, had I not gone uh, over to America and been part of their system. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it'd certainly be easier these days. Back in the early 90s, there wasn't, uh, you know, internet was just on its way in and all these ways of communicating weren't around. So, uh, yeah, it would have been a lot more difficult back in those days as well, just to have that communication back home. Yes, definitely. I mean, just to make a simple phone call back home, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, $10, uh, you know, just for a, like a five-minute call. Like, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have our mobile phones, everything was just a, a handwritten letter. Um, so, like I said, it was a it was a tough transition to, to be so far away. And I remember I got there and my parents had given me a one-way ticket and I said to them, you know, when I come home, I'll, uh, I'll give you a call and, you know, we can pay for the return flight. And I was only there three days before I called my parents to come home. And my mum basically said, look, we knew you'd do this and we'd like you to be there for a minimum of six months and hung up the phone. So... I ended up lasting uh, a year and a half, nearly two years, and I think that tough love certainly proved to be beneficial, uh, primarily through my running career, where there were a, a number of hardships that I had to face, but having known that I'd done it time and time before, I was able to get through it a lot easier than probably other athletes that hadn't gone through what I'd gone through. Okay, yep, for sure. Um, now, as you mentioned, you're in Geelong, uh, then you went over there, the scholarship, you've come back. Is this around about the time you decided to... Uh, to move to Ballarat, um, home of another great Aussie runner, Steve Monteghetti. Um, was there any yeah. about that time? Yep. I moved straight home. I said hello to my parents and I drove straight to Ballarat. So yep. I wanted to, I, I realised when I was in the States that, you know, by training with great athletes, it got the best out of you. And Geelong didn't really have, at that time, athletes that I felt could challenge me. And I also knew that Monteghetti had already been to uh, the Olympics and he was trying to make the 96 Olympics. And so for me, it was a case of that if I wanted to, you know, be one of the best runners, I should train with one of the best runners. And Mona was already at that stage a, a two-time Olympic athlete. So I uh, came home, said hi to my mum and dad, and within half an hour I was on the road to Ballarat to uh, start my career of training with Mona and becoming a better athlete. Yep. Now, you guys went on to form a pretty solid mateship that you're still obviously very strong today, but those early days, was it, was it like that? Or did it take a while for you guys to make a connection, or how did that sort of play it, out? It, um, Mono is a guy that likes to keep his cards close to his chest. So, you know, I had already said as a, as a younger athlete, I, I love to train hard, race hard, party hard. And so uh, I'd ran with a, a club in Ballarat called the Ballarat Harriers, and you know, my reputation, obviously, of, of being a guy that um, would always push the envelope hard uh, was well known. And so when I got to Ballarat, I don't think Mona, uh, having known my past history, was overly keen to uh, to welcome me. But he was he was good. I Like, I'd left a number of phone messages and I'd got no phone call back. So I just marched around to his house and knocked on his door and, and just said to him, look, you know, I, I've driven up here. I 
want to to train with you and you know i want to obviously emulate what you've done and you know i look at it back now and you know it was pretty ballsy to do that and i think mona you know i'd hate to know exactly what mona was thinking at the time um but you know he was just like look yeah if you want to train with me that's great i i have you know pretty simple rules and that is you get three shots and i train at eight o'clock in the morning and five o'clock at night and i'll give you three chances and uh if you blow them then pack your bags and don't worry about training with me and you know for me like i i'd already consigned that i was just going to hunt him down until i found him to to be able to train with him and basically it took i'd say probably a couple of months uh for monitor to, to get to know me um and Mona had always gone to bat for me so when people would you know have a formed opinion that they had formed from someone else from someone else from someone else and it's the old don't let the truth stand in the way of a good story Mona was always you know there to go to bat for me and just say look he's not that guy and you know that's not what happened and if you know him he's one of the most loyal guys you are that you will meet and so my friendship with Mona obviously um, grew and grew and grew uh, to the point where I travelled a lot with him and his family. And so I know Tanya very well and I know their kids, um, Emma, Laura, Matthew and Olivia, and I'm godfather to, to Matthew. And we formed a great relationship and particularly in those uh, early years of um, not necessarily 95 because I was injured, but 96, 97, 98, like as I was developing as an athlete, a lot of what I learnt uh, beyond that was what I'd learned in those early years with Mona, you know, what it took with training, what it took with commitment to get, you know, physical therapy and massage every week, uh, to, to do all the one percenters to keep yourself healthy from icing and, um, uh, stretching and, you know, it just, it, it helped me seeing someone do that firsthand, knowing full well that seeing that, that's what I knew I had to do. Now, when we went on training camps, like those training camps weren't fun. It was just hard training. So, that set me up really well, but it forged a, a, an unbreakable friendship, which we still have today. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Obviously, um, yeah, he, he taught you that professional approach to running. Um, and obviously a lot of that, uh, you talked about training with him physically, but obviously, as you mentioned before, a lot of our mental um, guidance there, I, I guess you could say as well, how to approach it mentally uh, in training and, and on race day. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was a massive difference between what we did in training and what we did in racing. And I've said this, you know, time and time again, Mona taught me to be a better racer. You know, he, his way of just doing the training, doing everything that needed to be done to then all of a sudden standing on the start line, just a different person, you know, like his tenacity to make people hurt. You know, it was something that I emulated. And I know that once that switched for me mentally in races of just at you know in opportune times of just throwing in a surge when runners weren't ready for it or going hard from the gun and, and having guys hanging off you uh just just the different ways that he was able to race he got the best out of people and it was the thing that i admired the most and it took me a while in my career to learn that you know i always saw Mona as a friend and we get to races and we talk about what i was going to do but we never really talked about what he was going to do and we get into races and when he turned that switch on he could break everyone so it, it took me a while to learn getting into a race to keep my cards close to my chest and to apply the same pressure to him that he applied to me and I think, you know, during that time, we certainly got the best out of each other, but we also elevated um, the Australian distance running because both of us were up the front trying to beat the living daylights out of each other in, in a friendly rival way, but it also elevated everyone else to get on that train and, and go along with us. So 
uh, I have a lot to be thankful for when it comes to Mona, not only from the friendship and learning a lot from training to be a better uh, elite athlete, but what it took uh, to race and to make sure that when you cross the finish line, every ounce of energy was done. And regardless of the result, you just needed to know deep down that uh, you got the best out of the people you raced against. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's a lot of good stuff there, mate. That's awesome. Um, look, I, I just mentioned 99, which is a, a great year, and we're going to talk about it. I'll just, for the listeners, I'm just going to talk about some uh, some of those years leading into it. And, um, and these are just some highlights I grabbed, but you can obviously talk about some other ones that I've missed there, mate. Um, so 95, um, like, you, know, you, just, you just got back. Um, 95, you would have already moved to Ballarat. Um now 73 so you're 18 years old and you ran 30 minutes 41 seconds at Zatapak. um that's not a bad time as an 18 year old finishing 22nd overall uh yeah so that one in 94 wasn't a great race for me because i'd come back from the states i'd raced a, an a grade 5k um and i think i was 21 so yeah that would have been uh 94 so i was 21 uh i'd run 13 50 something in a 5k i remember there was rod de hyde and sean quilty robbie o'donnell um it was the last big race that we were having before zatapec and then two weeks later we had zatapec and i remember i no one had seen me i'd been in the states for for a couple of years so running that 5k was the very first race that i had done uh since being away so i had shocked a lot of people because a no one knew when i was back but then also Everyone had known me as a, as a great junior athlete. I hadn't raced as a senior. So I was really determined to have a great um, Zatapec in, um, in 1995. Uh, I was there with five laps to go, and then I got a stitch, and I went out the back door, and in five laps I got overlapped. Um, and I crossed the line in, in 30-40, which was uh, a really disappointing run because I had set myself up for obviously having a, a great run and wanting to run 29 uh, minutes if I could, um, but that didn't happen. So uh, it, was a, it was a disappointing one, but uh, one of those ones where I was like, all right, I'll live to fight another day and uh, we'll get ready for the next one. Certainly. Um, and the year later, you did run 29.05 at Zatapec, finishing 10th. You also ran 13.54 at, uh, for a 5,000 metres at the um, NEC Classic in Melbourne there. Um, yep. So 13.54... Would that have been a PB at that stage? It must have been. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. By how much? Can you remember? Uh, it wasn't by much. I'd always been hovering around that 1358, 1402 okay. right, yeah. mark. So um, if I hadn't have gone... Uh, no, I, I did. I, I'd gone under it when I first got back from the States. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely a PB, um, but it would have been by a few seconds. Okay. 97, um, the same event. You've ran 13.36 at the 5,000 metres at the NEC Classic, finishing third. Um, and you also took out the City of Surf there, uh, up there in Sydney, in 40 minutes and 55 seconds, which, you know, sub-41 these days doesn't happen that often uh, by Aussies. I um, mean, obviously, Monas was always running low 40s. Um, but, yeah, sub-41 doesn't happen so often these days. So tell us about that race. We, did you, obviously, I'm not going to be silly to say, did you go into that race to win? But who was around you on that day? And tell us how that sort of unfolded. Um, so that race, I think we had Shorten Crichton. He'd come back from the World Championships to run. Uh, but there was a young standout Ethiopian athlete called Mizan Mahari. 
Uh, Julian Painter had won the race, um, I think, two years earlier in 94. So uh, I thought I could win. I, uh, I'd won uh, the Lake Macquarie half marathon that year, which was the Australian Championships. I ran 13.36 in that 5K racing Paul Betock. Uh, and I had run on pure aggression. I'd got overlooked for the World Cross Country Championships in Italy that year. And I'd gone on a little bit of a rampage. I, uh, in April, I went to um, uh, a place called Steingarten, had the Steingarten Challenge in Adelaide. It was a handicap race. And um, I ended up winning that. Uh, I'd won a number of uh, Victorian races uh, in the cross country season. So, and then I'd won the Australian Half Marathon Championships. I ran 63 minutes. Uh, for that and had won that pretty much from the gun. So I went into uh, City to Surf knowing that I could win, um, but then also respectful of, you know, how tough that course can be. And I'd also just signed a, a Nike contract in 96. So all things were, were you know, moving in the right direction. And uh, I knew that Mona had won it and I wanted to emulate that. And uh, it was a tough race. I remember I had Mizan Mahari. I, I, I took off going up Heartbreak Hill and, got to the top of Heartbreak Hill and Mizan Mahari was still on me. And luckily, after you get up, up over Heartbreak Hill, there's like two or three really tough rolling hills. And I just kept pressing the hills to try and break um, Mizan. And Mizan's a, a, a great track runner. He's got great rhythm and he really feels and rolls off the rhythm that you've got. So I just treated it like a, a cross-country course that we've got in Ballarat that we were doing every Saturday over the Benson's Hill course and I just kept crunching the hills and I'd get up over the top and I'd crunch the next one and I finally broke him on the on the third one and then it's just a long downhill uh, hill all the way into Bondi before you take that turn uh, and then finish on the beach and you know the crowd was going great I remember as I'm I've broken Mizan and I'm running into Bondi a, a girl that was dressed as Wonder Woman come by me on rollerblades or roller skates and I was just like, what the hell's going on? You know, like I just got to keep the head down and keep the concentration going and cross the finish line. And, you know, winning winning that race was fantastic because it, uh, it set me up for a couple of years to, to work with Westpac, um, which uh, a year later was then known as the Bank of Melbourne. Uh, and they were a big sponsor of the Sydney Olympics. So I was able to get a, a thing that was called OJOP, the Olympic Job Opportunity Program. And I was an ambassador for Westpac because being in Sydney, and Westpac, uh, that's where their home is. Winning the City to Surf, it was relatable to everyone that lived there. So I got to do a lot of public speaking. And in Ballarat, uh, Westpac became Bank of Melbourne. And I got a great job where I worked 20 hours a week. But then I also got 20 weeks paid leave to go and travel and race. So um, it set me up really well. Um, but, you know, back to your point, I thought I could win. I'd had a great 97 where I said I'd won a number of races and then I've been unbeaten for a number of them so I just took that confidence into the race but then also knowing the magnitude of who before me had won you know Deke won, Monard won like all these great people have run and won it and I wanted to uh, follow in their footsteps. Yeah no fantastic and yeah like you said it's amazing what came out of that win for you um, and you know you, you've built a reputation of, of a man who loves the hills and still believes in lots of hill training for strength and um clearly that worked for you on that day so yeah it's fantastic it's it's a tough course to run the old city to surf um i find it very very challenging it's certainly got everything in there to test you as a runner absolutely yeah mate you've gone zatapak in december and you've run 2808 and you've won 
picking up the national title. So uh, that was with Monners. I was looking at Monners, who finished second. He was must have been on your shoulders across the line. He's only one second behind. So that must have been fantastic. That was the first time I actually beat Monner in a true sense. So Monner's the guy that will always come up to, to race. And Zadipek, he, he's it's unprecedented what Monner's been able to do. And, you know, I remember that my goal was to make the Commonwealth Games. The qualifying standard, I think, was 28-12. Uh, so I knew what I had to do. And I got into the race. And, you know, obviously everyone can get through the next third and, uh, you know, the middle third was the great point of the race that I just really needed to focus on. And I got through that. And then there was a great New Zealand runner called Robbie Johnson that was with us. And there was Mono, Robbie Johnson and I. And every time I felt Mono go around me, well, not felt, he did go around me, I knew that was his attempt to try and break me. And I would wait until I felt that he had given his best shot. And then I would shoot around him and I'd do the same thing. And uh, I broke Mono. Um, in that race, uh, it was probably with a couple of laps to go. And, you know, I just – and you never ease up with Mono because you know he's coming. And I worked and worked and worked. And, you know, crossing that finish line and getting um, the Australian title in that race was such a pivotal moment on many levels because I'd made the Commonwealth Games, which I'd never done before. And, B, I'd, I ran the qualifying standard, which, um, you know, I, I hadn't got close to before. But then I, I beat Mono, and that was probably the – probably the biggest moment for me um, at that time was that I was able to beat someone that had always had the upper hand on me. Um, I might have beaten him in races that were less significant, but the Zatapec, it doesn't get any bigger. And that certainly gave me a lot of confidence that I could race against the best guys, that I could make teams, um, and then obviously winning uh, an Australian title, um, which I think was my second or third but it was actually a race that was of significance because everyone was there like i mean not everyone turned up to the australian half marathon championships you know not everyone will turn up to a cross-country race particularly if runners are on the other side of the world running at world championships or or olympics but that day everyone was there and i got to to beat monner and it certainly did a lot for my for my confidence and positivity moving forward yeah for sure for sure um World Half Marathon Championships in Slovakia that year as well, running 63-43. Was that your first time with the Aussie Singlet for the World Halves? Uh, I'd been at World Cross 96. Um, so World Half, that was in a place called Kashitsa, mm. and I got food poisoning and I roomed with Pat Carroll. Right. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, it was the first time I'd travelled as far as what we did to get there and uh, Czechoslovakia was broken up into the Czech Republic, Slavic Republic. Um, it was just so much travel to get there. And we got there early because Australia is obviously so far away. Um, and I flew with Pat Carroll. And uh, a couple of days before the race, Pat woke up and he was just like, crikey, what has gone on here? And yeah, I lifted up the windows and I unfortunately got food poisoning. And I was not in a good way, um, but I was able to get a, uh, like a vitamin B injection just to be able to get up for the race. And uh, I had a fantastic start. Uh, and then the last probably six to eight kilometres, I I was so dehydrated from having uh, the, the illness that I just started to get slower and slower. So I was impressed that I still ran 63.40 because on that given day, it was really probably only worth about a 66-minute effort. Um, but again, being with someone like Pat Carroll, 
you know, despite the, the circumstances of being sick and not well, uh, he certainly made the trip a heck of a lot better experience for me. And I got out there and I felt amazing for the first 10K. I'm pretty sure I was under 29 minutes and, and feeling awesome. Uh, but then, like I said, that uh, that awesomeness ran out with about uh, seven or eight kilometres to go. And I was like an old broken down car. Sparks were just flying off me with wheels falling off. Um, but again, like I said, I, I'd never travelled that far and I'd never been in a country where um, it was so different. And uh, again, another another great learning experience. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mate, moving on to 98, um, you started off posting some pretty solid 5,000 metre times at, um, I guess, the National Grand Prix Series back then in various cities um, in the um, in the 5,000 metres, um, which I guess in some of those races were selections, I imagine, for, for KL. Is that right? Or? Um, no, I can't remember. I, I really can't remember. I know that I'd qualified for the 10K off Zatapec. Yep. Um, the 5K, I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure we would have had nationals and maybe the Melbourne meet would have been nationals because most were going to world cross country. And so 98, the world cross country was in Marrakesh in Morocco. Yep. Um, but then we had later championship races in Darwin um, as lead-ins for the Commonwealth Games. So off the top of my head, I really can't remember. It might have been a series of races and they might have averaged out and hence why I got selected in the 5K. Um, but, I mean, that was 21 years ago. So yeah, um, like, I definitely remember how I qualified for the, for the 10K. Yeah, I'm just having a look here. It's... Um, possibly the Sydney meet. There was a, a selection race for the ten and the five. Um, you uh, you finished first in in the ten and, th- and third in in the five thousand meters. So whether that was, I mean, you say you got, you pretty much were selected anyway off Zatapak, but um, saying the Sydney hit race here, you finished first in that ten thousand meter race as well. Um, Dan, as a selection okay. meet uh, for KOL. Um, so over there in, in KL, um, Kuala Lumpur, you, um, you ran 13.56.32, finishing sixth in the, in the 5,000, and then 29.34.23, finishing seventh in, in the 10. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was your first Com Games, a great experience? Definitely. Um, went in there with uh, probably a little arrogance. Um, you know, I knew Mona was in the, on the team, and... I'd already penciled in that I was going to have him beaten and uh, was looking forward to hopefully being in the top three of the 10K. And I got about 10 laps in and unfortunately uh, that slight bit of arrogance and then the extreme heat and humidity just kicked my ass and uh, Mona come screaming past me and Mona obviously had a, <laughs> a fantastic race um, and I was left there wondering. It was... Uh, wasn't a wasn't a good performance for me. Um, it was one of those ones where I couldn't get off the track quick enough. And but saying that, as soon as I got off the track, I only had one day to recover because then I had the the semi-final of the 5k and then the heat of the 5k. So I only had a day to to I guess be miserable with uh, with how poorly I ran. Um, but then I turned it around in the 5k, uh, which I was extremely pleased with. As I said, I only had um, a day to recover. And then I ran the 5K heat where I finished third. 
and then I came back the following day for the 5K final and finished sixth. But I was the only guy that uh, had made the you know, had ran the 10K and then did the semi of the 5K and the final of the 5K. So there was 20K of track racing in four days, which uh, you know positives from that showed that I definitely have the strength to be a, a distance athlete. Um, I'm not necessarily great uh, when it comes to, to heat and humidity, uh, and a lot of that's just due to my, my makeup. Um, but, you know, when it gets to the point of that I've really got to grind and work hard, I def definitely feel that I've got what it takes, and that's why we obviously saw 99 being that great transition for me where I was able to, you know, run 7.41 for 3K, uh, you know, 13.14 for, for 5K, uh, I debuted at the London Marathon and ran 2.11. Um, at the time, I was only a couple of seconds off Mona's uh, debut for the marathon. So that that Commonwealth game certainly uh, gave me, uh, you know, it lit the fire under my under my behind to uh, to try and be better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now I'm just thinking, um, just back to the relationship, you know, with Mona's there. You know, you're training together, you're good mates. He's he's helping you, uh, but then you just you know, destroying each other on the track and you're racing each other for medals and, you know, championships and that. I mean, did that, how did you guys actually handle that just extremely well or was there a little bit of stuff going on the side, a bit of friction or? No, no, I mean, mateship was always first. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that, that, I mean, and, and I've said this before and, you know, and I think Mona's probably got a little, um, you know, got his nose a little out of place when I've said this years, years later. Um, and, you know, I always said that, you know, I wish I had a coach. And, you know, Mona was like, oh, will you train with me? And I coached her. And Mona was, Mona, Mona wasn't my coach. Mona was a guy that I would talk to about my training. And he would go, yeah, I think you should do that. Or maybe you shouldn't do that. And I'd be like, well, you know, what do you think about this from, from a racing point of view? And we discuss it. But Mona wasn't a coach. Like, Mona wasn't coming to Geelong um, with a stopwatch in his hand and reading out splits, you know. Uh, Mona wasn't coming to races and we'd be breaking down the races. I mean, that's just not how we operated as uh, as athletes, you know. Like, basically what Chris Wardlaw told Mona to do, I did what Mona did. And we, it was the same seven days a week, twice a day, every day. You know, Mona Fartlek Tuesdays, Deeks Quarters Thursdays, Benson's Hills on Saturdays, two and a half hours on Sundays, an hour 45, two hours on Wednesdays. It didn't change, you know. and you know, so we would get into those environments where that's what we we're going to do. But then when we get to races, I, I never had a clear-cut plan. Like, my plan was always just go hard from the start or, you know, sit for the first few laps and then just try to wind it up. Like, I never, I never took the strengths and weaknesses that I had and applied it into somebody that I truly trusted to break down what was the best way for me. Um, you know, Mona always had Chris Wardlaw to bounce those ideas off. And so when I finished uh, my time in Ballarat and I moved to Geelong, it was still the same applied stuff. I started mixing up my own training, so I started coaching myself and, you know, I'd speak to Mona. And Mona always played the advisor role, um, you know, and like I said, it wasn't a true coaching role. And the only reason why I say that now is because living here in the U.S. for the last um, 11 years, I've taken on the role as a coach and I understand what the role of the coach is. You know, the coaches at the training workout giving the splits, you know, will tell an athlete when they need to stop because they're uh, redlining or an athlete's having a good workout and they decide we're going to add an extra couple of reps into the training 
um, focusing on how the race is going to break down, on how the training's being done. I just trained hard all the time. Like I never had a filter of if I was doing a workout and I wasn't feeling great that I should change the workout or do less reps. I just did exactly what I wrote on the training schedule that three or four months earlier I'd spoken to Mona and we just said, yep, that's what we're going to do. And so, you know, I don't want Mona to be critical of that because at the time that was our relationship and it's just with a much older and wiser head that I look back and I'm like, no, no, the role that was devised between me and Mona was advisor. Um, It definitely wasn't a coach component to that. And there's no regrets. I'm not making excuses. It, It was what it was. But like I said, I'd go to races and Mona would be given a race strategy from Wardlaw and I didn't really have a strategy. My strategy was, all right, I'm just going to go out hard and, you know, I'll just do whatever Mona's doing, which, you know, like I said, it's, it, it, there's nothing, there was nothing wrong with that and it's easy to say that years later that I wish it had been different. But at the time, that was the best um, situation that I was put in. Um, I also think playing devil's, devil's advocate here that I probably wasn't coachable. Um, I didn't have a lot of trust in people and, I always felt that I could could do it better. Um, But, you know, back to your um, previous uh, point, um, you know, I didn't have any regrets in those races if Mona beat me. You know, if Mona beat me, he beat me fair and square, and I I basked in his success just like he did with me. Um, You know, there might have been times I might have gone home disappointed that I felt that I could have been better or I could have beaten Mona, and I guarantee... Mono would have been exactly the same because as as humans and individuals, you know, we always want to be better and we always know that, you know, a certain race that there might have been someone that we could have beaten that we didn't and that's just personal pride. But it certainly didn't affect us the following day when we went to training. Um, you know, I was always at Mona's house on a Friday night having fish and chips. You know, that was the staple of the Monaghetti household. So um, I think that's what made our relationship extremely unique, um, that even if we didn't have the race that we wanted, we would be disappointed within ourselves, but we certainly wouldn't um, be jealous of um, of the other's performance. Yep, yep. Oh, no, no, fantastic, mate. Yeah, well said. Thanks for that. Um, 99 that year, um, we'll just quickly go over it. You've mentioned a, a few of them. <clears throat> you are... Uh, you ran that 61 uh, flat. Well, let's call it uh, let's call it 60 uh, 58, mate. I'll take it from the horse's mouth. And um, well, it's got to be 61 flat. It's in the record book. Yeah, so, I, uh, I know. It, it is yeah, what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, something nice about a zero zero anyway. Um, yeah, Ron Clark's uh, record you picked up there, and then debut marathon in London, as you mentioned, two eleven twenty one, finishing eleventh overall. That's not a bad debut. That must have really got the uh, got the light bulb lighting up. Uh, it didn't really because I always knew I was going to be a marathoner and I wanted to be a marathoner. Yep. You know, I idolised Deke and, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And then I was fortunate to be a friend and a training partner of Mona's and I wanted to be like Mona and, you know, that's all I wanted to do. Like the success that I got on the track and the success I had in other um, events was just a bonus, you know, and all that stuff was just filling in time until I got to fulfill my destiny, which was to be a marathoner. Mm. So I went to London. There was no fear. There was no trepidation. I was just going with the leaders and I was going to hang on as long as I could um, and run as fast as I could. Now, off my 61 flat, I know that I should have run sub 210, uh, but I was in the lead pack and we were 65-22 at, uh, at halfway. Um, uh, when you're running you know, that, that slow, you know, at, uh, actually, no, we were slower than that. 
Rule 65. God, what were we? I ran pretty much like 65. Let's just say 65.40, 65.40. What's that? That's 211.20. So that's, that's pretty much what I ran. Um, but I was hoping that we were going to go like 63.30 to 64 minutes. And um, I remember in the race, uh, Almaziz from Morocco took off and the pacemakers went, but we had all these superstars in the race, Gert Ties, um, uh, uh, we had uh, Ronaldo da Costa, who was the world record holder at the time, Lee Bonjou, uh, John Brown, and no one wanted to go. So then that became the pack. And so, like I said, we were slow through the first, uh, through the first half. But it might have been 65.22, and then I ran 65.59. Um, but all of a sudden, we got to, um, to 30 kilometres, and then the race started winding up and winding up and winding up. And we got to 34, and I didn't have the legs. You know, I hadn't done a race beyond um, the half marathon. And so I just, it was my first marathon. I ran out of gas, and I got dropped with five miles to go, and I just had to grind it out. But, you know, I ran 2.11.21, and I was only three seconds off Mona's uh, 2.11.18 that he ran on debut. And, you know, I was, I was happy that I finally got to be a marathoner, but I certainly wasn't happy with uh, the time that I ran because I knew I was in much better shape to, to break 2.10. And, you know, it was one of those races where I, I panicked, right? You know, you've got world record holders, Olympic champions, Commonwealth champions, and no one went with El Maziz. And so it would have been a very bold move for me to have taken off with him, um, particularly if I'd got dropped at, you know, 10 miles or halfway. I would have been a, a dead man walking. So I, I played the safe game and I, I sat back with everyone. And then all of a sudden, when it got time to get serious, experience won over and I had the inexperience and I was one of the first guys to get dropped. But, you know, I still finished 11th in a, in a world marathon major and ran 2.11. And um, again, I came back with that with just so much excitement and glee because I knew from that point, now that I'd finally ran one marathon, that's where I was going to be until I retired. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, it's certainly impressive first marathon, mate. Um, you also picked up another couple of Aussie singles that year, the World Cross in Belfast, and um, and you ran the, the 5,000 metres at, uh, at Seville at the World Champs there, finishing 12th in 13.42.96. Was there any other... Um, what other Aussies were on the team back then in 99? Uh, in 99, I think Crichton might have been in the 5K. I think it might have just been... Oh, and Mizan Mahari. Were, were in the 5k um i'd actually qualified for the 5k 10k and marathon yep. and the only event that i wanted to run was the marathon and the only event that the head coach at the time chris wardlaw would let me run was the 5k um you know the the 10k ended up becoming a straight final um and then the 5k i got ran out of the heat so i was the i was the first non-qualifier to uh to not make the final um, and then I had pressed for the next two days uh, for them to allow me to run the marathon because there was only four guys that were running the marathon, um, but they wouldn't let me run. And so I certainly at that time in 99 uh, saw a little bit of a changing of my own mental attitude. You know, I'd broken Clarky's record, which was great, and I ran 741, which was great, but everything was in preparation for me to run my first marathon and then I ran my first marathon and then all I wanted to do was run the marathon at the world championships and the opportunity was taken away from me um, and I ended up becoming very bitter at that particular time um, 
um, particularly with how the bureaucracies of, of governing bodies work. And, you know, the, the argument from Chris and uh, some of the selectors at the time was, you know, we'd finally taken 33 years for someone to break the Australian record and they didn't want to lose me to the marathon. All I wanted to do was run the marathon. I mean, if you look at the 5K now, I mean, have a look at everyone that we've got from Mottram to McSween to Patrick Tiernan. You know, like, the, the world moved on. Um, so it took me a number of years to not be so, um, for the use of a better word, pissed off with the system um, at that particular time because I felt like my right had been taken away. Like all the endless weeks of running 200 Ks a week and putting in the blood, sweat and tears, going to the physical therapist once a week, going to um, a masseuse once a week, paying out of your own pocket to fly around the country to go to races. You know, I believed as a, as a key stakeholder of the sport that I deserved the right to make that decision. Um, and because that decision was taken away from me, um, it certainly set a bad precedent for the rest of my career because I just started doing crazy stuff. You know, I started training three times a day, um, which then I got injured um, and I'd never been injured. And I started training three times a day, but um, towards the end of 1999, I got injured with a stress fracture in my uh, femur. And then that then affected what I had to do in order to make the Sydney Olympic Games. Um, I had to miss eight weeks and I only had six or seven weeks to get up for the trials. And then I had to run the trials in 2000 where I did qualify. I only scraped in um, because hardly no one had that time, um, which I think you needed to be under 214. Um, so I, I scraped in, but I certainly had a... Um, I certainly had a, uh, a bone to pick uh, for, for a number of years after that uh, World Championships in Seville. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've got you down here for that selection race in Sydney um, for the marathon, running, finishing fifth, running 2.18.50. Would that be right? Yep. Yep, okay. yep. and I only got in because Rod de Hayden won. So, so they had already given a spot to Steve Monaghetti um, based on him having a fast time and... Um, you know, him uh, having had the career that he's had. Um, then whoever won the trials got in, which Rod de Hayden won, and then whoever had the next time based on place got in. So um, the Magnus Mickelson didn't have the time. Uh, then there were two others in front of me that didn't have the time. So then I automatically got the third spot. Um, but, again, it just, it just sent a bad – just it, it set a bad precedent for me because – like in 1998, when I went to the Commonwealth Games, I'd run the 5 and 10, but I wanted to run the marathon, and they wouldn't let me run it. And when I asked why, they were just like, you haven't run a marathon. And I was like, well, hang on, Steve Monaghetti ran a marathon at the Commonwealth Games in 1986, and he'd never ran a marathon, um, but they knew that, you know, with what they'd seen, that he was going to be a marathon runner in the making. And so he got an opportunity to run, and he got a bronze medal. And so... I was hoping that those opportunities would be bestowed upon me, but so many things changed, which, you know, was, and it wasn't against Monaghetti, it was just against the system, you know, that the system was picking and choosing who had to fulfil qualifying times and qualifying um, procedures versus others that they weren't forcing them to do that. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, I think that, particular way of doing things hurt a number of people that um you know 
didn't get the same opportunities. So luckily for me that I'm stubborn and, you know, I stayed in the sport because I wasn't going to have them tell me how it could be done and I still ended up having a, a, a very good career. But I certainly know in 1999 that changed how I felt about the system uh, moving forward. So uh, I didn't have to train three times a day if I, uh, you know, had just stuck with how I was doing things normally and I was content and happy, um, I probably wouldn't have had the injuries that I had. Uh, but in saying that, um, I might not have been as fired up as I was to get the most out of myself for the, for the career that I had. So, you know, we don't know, but all I can say is how I felt at the time and why I made certain decisions uh, for what I did. Yep, yep. Um, now, the Sydney Olympic Marathon didn't go so well. I assume that would be because of the uh, lack of prep heading into it due to those injuries you spoke about? Um, yeah, so basically once I qualified for the Olympics, I stupidly just wanted to start training for the Olympics and I didn't ever take the time to address the injury that I had and I didn't do the stability and the core work and all the things with the injury that I had. So I, the injury was right up in the head of the femur and so basically through trying to protect the femur, I had overcompensated the other side. Um, because, you know, the other side's working twice as hard so that the side that's affected and injured doesn't have to have more trauma on it. And I, obviously, I didn't do a half marathon or a marathon. I had qualified for the Olympics. I recovered. I just got back into racing, um, did uh, like the 10K and 5K at the track trials, if I recall, and I did uh, the cross-country championships in Melbourne, 12K. But I didn't do anything that really stressed the area. And then when I got into the Olympic marathon, I mean, I was fourth at halfway. Like, I was with a pack of 11 guys. I was having the race of my life. It was just, like, it was amazing. And then we went down this slight hill through the city centre before we had to go up over the Glebe Island Bridge. And I took, like, three or four strides going up the bridge, and I felt this slight pop uh, in my stomach, which I thought, oh, okay, this is a bit weird, and I kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and... All of a sudden, it just felt like a stitch, and I was like, "Damn, I can't, I can't shake it." And I got up over the bridge, and I was coming down the other side of the bridge, and Mono went past me, and runners started going past me, and it didn't get any better. And you know, I got to 30k or whatever, and I started vomiting blood. And you know, my job was just to finish because you know Australians have a a hardcore mantra that uh, if you're ever going to pull out of a race, you need to take your singlet off and leave it on the side of the road. And I knew my parents were in the stadium, and I knew I had to finish within two and a half hours and you know i ended up finishing and 229 and some change i've never ever watched the race um but we found out uh, several months later that i'd actually torn my rectus abdominis and the tear was as a result of the overcompensating from the stress fracture that i had in the uh opposite side uh on my femur so um i paid a paid a price so um it then took a again a a, a bit of time to mentally get over the uh the ordeal of uh of failing again um on a on a big championship scale uh, scale stage and um trying to put the pieces of where i went wrong and then what i needed to do to recover yeah yeah okay um and you're still still in ballarat at this stage in 2000 yep i decided after the olympics to move back to geelong yep. um and i think at that time like i i took you know, you asked me before, was there any jealousy? Like I, like I'll be honest, there was there was jealousy of my 
performance and then seeing Mona finish 10th, you know, and not jealousy of him as a person. It was jealousy of what could have been, right? And he was a guy that I trained with. I'd finally got everything together. I felt like, you know, I was doing really well. I'd had this great success, you know, through 96, 97, 98, and even 99. And then all of a sudden, the whole catalyst changed in 99 when we were in Seville. And I just became frustrated with racing. You know, I got frustrated being in Europe and I came home and I didn't want to do Zatapec. And, you know, I just, there was just a lot of things I didn't want to do. And then I just wanted to train and I got injured and, you know, I, I got myself up to qualify and I then went to the Olympics and I bombed out. And, you know, it was just a, a tough, tough time, you know, like I, you know, it's been interesting, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I had an athlete that I coached take his life and I went into a very dark place and, you know, you're trying to work out the meaning of life, you know, and I lost a running store um, and we lost our house and, you know, it sort of reminded me a little bit of that 2000 to 2002 period where I couldn't for the life of me get on top of my running and get on top of things. I had patches of some good things happening, but I certainly had a, a, a lot of um, bricks on my shoulder that were just weighing me down. And, you know, I took a lot of frustration from that Sydney 2000 Olympics over the next couple of years. You know, I sort of got myself back right again. I went to Rotterdam and I ran 210, um, but then I got injured again and I couldn't do Chicago in 2001. And then I tried to get up, you know, and I got to Commonwealth Games and things were starting to move in the right direction for me, but I didn't have a great Commonwealth Games. And then I started to turn everything around again and, you know, ran well in 2003 with my PR, ran great at London in 2004, but then I bombed out at the Athens Olympics again, you know. So it was just one of those ones of where it was just like this um, this piece of the past, you know, this, this thing of the past that I couldn't shake. It would always sort of every year kick me in the pants where it would bomb me out and then I'd have to really reset and work hard and put everything in to get myself back in the game again, which I was able to do, you know, um, in 2004 and you know then sort of i struggled again in 2005 and then i missed the commonwealth games in melbourne in in 2006 and then i had to reset and really work hard to get myself back up in 2007 and then to the olympics in 2008 but then i bombed out again at the olympics in 2008 so um you know if, if i've got to go back to points and sunny because we're talking about that 99 2000 point i think not having a coach and not having a mentor and not having someone outside of Mona that I could have talked to, I think was debilitating for me because I just bottled it up and I just, I used it as ammunition, but probably not in the foreseeable future in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. I, I was just looking, um, you know, over that period you're talking about from 2000, um, you know, you're struggling with that injury. Um, looks like I kept coming back to bite you. But looking at your, your marathon results over the next, let's say, your Olympic period, 2000, 2004, 2008, um, I mean, you've, you've, done, um, you've done five marathons down to 212 and you've got your two sub-210s. Um, so there were some pretty good results coming out there. I know you said it wasn't six. Go going... Six was sub-210. <clears throat> six, is it? Okay. Sorry, six was sub-212. Yeah, I had two... Yeah. 
two that were uh, two ten, and then I had sorry, two that were two nine, two that were two ten, and then two that were two eleven. Yeah, and uh, Rotterdam two ten oh four, so it was close. Were you, were you looking at yep. the clock trying to go for that sub two ten, or that's all you had? <laughs> uh, no, I was I was going for it. Um, yeah, I <laughs> it was. One of those, you know, you're talking about trying to get funny stories, but uh, we went over there to you know try and run fast, and obviously I hadn't had a great. Sydney Olympics and so I finally got my stomach right and I put everything into Rotterdam and I went with the second pack you know I wasn't confident enough to go with the first pack but we were still 64 64 something so you know on, on 208 pace and uh, just trying to remember the Spaniard at the time he was uh, meant to be going for the world record and um, it, it'll come to me as I'm telling the story and so anyway I played a safe bet but the second pack started to, to break up and it was just me me on my own and so I was running and running and running, and then I looked up at about 30k, and I saw this Spaniard that was uh, going for the for the uh, world record. Um, again, his name is going to come back to me, and um, I went flying past him, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm winning the Rotterdam Marathon. This is amazing. And for probably 500 to 800 meters, you now I got the chest out. You know, I'd already left the second pack, and I was running through the guys that were in the lead pack, and um, it dawned on me that there were no TV cameras around me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, I don't actually think I'm winning. Um, so I kept running and running. And then, yeah, I, I turned and I didn't know I was that close to, to 210. I'd certainly given everything that I had. But, uh, yeah, I crossed the line, 210.04. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just trying to find that guy's name, but I couldn't find it either. Um, it wasn't Julio Ray and it wasn't... Um, God, I, it'll it'll come to me. Mono, Mono will uh, will rip me because I, I should know uh, know who this guy was. So, um, but uh, anyway, yeah, he uh, he ended up falling behind me, and I was fifth, and I got that good result on the board. But yeah. then I was injured again. Yeah. No, yeah, and sure. I think the point that I was trying to make was before before Seville, I'd never been injured. Yeah. You know, and there was no reason for me to be injured because I loved my running, and I went out and I enjoyed my running, and. You know, you had good training days, bad training days, good races, bad races, but, you know, you did it because you loved it. And as soon as that hand, you know, an outside hand influenced my running, yep. it didn't become as enjoyable because I always I always felt I had something to prove and I always had to run to try and make teams. And, you know, I just felt that it was pretty cutthroat. And then I started getting injured as a result of all of this. And there's always timelines to races and you're always chasing chasing your tail mm. not able to uh to get yourself fully healthy and even though i had some good results it was certainly pretty patchy after 2000 yeah 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 now this injury um this sort of plagued you through that period it was the same injury uh no so you know then i got a calf injury everything was just related from then just my bone yeah yeah everything compensating uh, you know just yep yep and, and everything really did stand back though to that that stomach tear yeah. Um, and that was as a result of the of the femur stress fracture. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so let's let's move on to uh, to what you're up to now. I see you uh, I see you ran Boston in 2013 um, in, in that sort of a tragic year that we'll uh, we'll never forget. Um, you ran a you ran a 217.52 there. Had you taken up residence over in Boulder at that stage? Yeah, so we moved out of here in 2009. And we were only going to be here for um, a year. I was going to do Boston Marathon and New York Marathon. I decided after my third failed marathon that um, I was going to retire. Uh, sorry, third failed Olympic marathon, I was going to retire. So I thought we'll do Boston, New York. I hadn't done them. They were definitely on my um, 
on my bucket list and I ran Boston and that was in, so I wasn't a master's runner at that time. Um, but I, you know, ran uh, 217. I absolutely loved it. I mean, to be in Hop um, in uh, Hopkinton where the race starts and then finish in Boston Street, knowing that over 104, 108 years, thousands of runners had run before me and I got to run in the same footsteps of guys like Moner and Deke and, and the greats. Um, it reminded me of why I started running. Um, and it was also a big catalyst for me of then wanting to stay here in the US um, and just try something different. You know, I knew I was sort of a, a big fish in a small pond and I knew that, you know, there was a lot of frustration again from 2000 and I always just felt like, you know, I just, I just didn't find the sweet spot in my running like I had in that 96, 97, 98, 99 period. So we figured, all right, well, why don't we stay here and why don't we try and make a fourth Olympics from here? And I've just remembered who that uh, Spanish runner was. It was Fabian Roncero. Okay. So uh, I knew I'd eventually get it. <laughs> Fantastic. So when you say we, that's uh, your, your, your wife, is that right? Yeah. Had, yeah, yeah. Did wife you have kids daughter. at that time? Yeah, I had a, a young three-year-old, Macy. Okay. Yeah, right, yeah. Now, so when you – so it wasn't – I mean, obviously you're into coaching, um, which we'll talk about soon. So you didn't make the move over there with that sort of thought. It was actually over there to a new environment and to possibly make another Olympics. It was still to extend your running career. No, no, my – we were only coming here for a year. Right. Coming here to do the Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, and we were going to retire. Okay. And then it was after the Boston Marathon that I was like, shoot, you know, I really love that. It reminded me why I – started running to begin with and I got to run one of the world's most prestigious marathons and it got me thinking you know what like if I can enjoy my running uh maybe maybe there's an outside chance I can make four Olympics like Deacon Mona so that's why we decided to stay and then that's why I decided to try and make a fourth Olympics okay and let's let's talk about that journey you didn't you didn't make London so um so how did that unfold no, everything just didn't pan out. You know, I uh, I ran the uh, Boston in 2009 um, and then I was trying to get ready to race another marathon in 2009. Um, I got injured and then 2010, it was pretty much uh, the, same, the same thing of like just trying to get up for races. I think I ran a race in Italy at the end of 2010 um, ran 217 uh, for that, uh, but it was irrelevant because the qualification period starts at the start of 2011. Um, but then in 2010, I had uh, gone back to Australia because I was going to run the, the Sydney Marathon. Um, our, my wife, we were pregnant having twins, so we figured we'd go back to Australia. I'd run the Sydney Marathon, uh, use that as a, a great catalyst to get ready for 2011. And when we were flying there, I uh, unfortunately ended up in hospital. When I landed, I ended up getting a pulmonary embolism on my lung. Um, so then I spent uh, several weeks in hospital. I was put on blood thinning medication um, and I couldn't do the Sydney Sydney race. So, you know, we dealt with that and then we had to obviously deal with the, the birth of twin boys. So that sort of took care of uh, a lot of, of 20 20 uh the start of 2011 but i um had got myself into fairly decent shape i ran a half marathon in new york in march and ran 63 minutes and i had uh then the goal of running london marathon 
And so I went over to run London Marathon and that the sole aim was to qualify for, for the Olympics at that race and I went out too fast. Um, the paces ended up dropping out. I was stuck on my own and I got to about 25, 28K and the wheels started to, to fall off. And I do think that running that 63-minute half marathon uh, four weeks before took the edge off me. Um, you know, still trying to do what young men do, uh, you know, where I could have got away with that five, ten years ago. Uh, I couldn't get away with it today. So I ended up digging and effing, uh, came back to then try and run uh, Gold Coast Marathon, ran Gold Coast Marathon, ran decent. I think I ran 2.15. The standard at that stage was 2.14. So I was slightly off. Um, then looked to try and do um, another marathon uh, in 2011, uh, got injured again, and then 2012, uh, you know, tried to do another race. I can't remember what it was, uh, DNF'd, and then I went to Prague as my final attempt, um, and my SIJ blew out on the cobblestones, and I hobbled over in two and a half hours. So nothing really came to, to work for me. I mean, again, I, I was trying to get the most out of a battered body, but, you know, every time I tried to get up, I just couldn't quite get up. And, you know, I think realistically when I look at it, um, having had that uh, pulmonary embolism in 2010, uh, I think running that New York City half marathon, that was really my Olympic race. Um, so I ran 63 minutes, and, you know, I beat Ryan Hall. I, I had a day out for an old guy. Um, but that certainly uh, took the edge off me, and then I just never, never was able to uh, to rekindle um, what happened. And then, you know, we were dealing with twin boys as well, you know. So I mean, I don't want to under uh, underplay what it is uh, being a, a dad, uh, being in a foreign country where there's only you and your wife, and you you've got twin boys to deal with. I mean, uh, that was extremely tough work. But yeah, I just I just couldn't get my body right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and what were you doing for, for income while you were there during that period? So I was still lucky. I was sponsored by ASICS because uh, okay. the goal was to get through to 2012. Um, and I was still doing some road racing and, you know, getting getting some money on the side. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was still making some income at yeah. that time. I mean, you know, luckily my name did um, still at that stage hold some dollar value. So um, I could still pick up an appearance fee here and appearance fee there. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Fantastic. And at that stage, have, had you thought of staying there longer or it was just like year by year seeing how it would go obviously you didn't make the olympics in in, in 2012 so what was the decision then um so i started coaching um athletes um at end of 2010 moving into 2011 um and so i started coaching them so after 2012 um we decided look why don't we just give it four more years stay through to um to uh, the 2016 rio olympics and let's see if I can coach an Olympic athlete and we'll uh, put all our eggs in one basket, turn it into a bit of a life experience for our kids. So we ended up getting our resident cards and we decided we would do that for the next four years. So I started building up my coaching business. I was still racing um, at the time. I didn't officially retire until New York 2014. Um, and yeah, I was like, I then got excited because I thought oh, I might do some masters racing. Uh, which is what I did. I uh, ran Boston in uh, 2013. I won the Masters. I think I was 10th or 11th at all overall. But then we had the Boston bombings, and then that just yeah, that really. I think that was the icing on the cake of me wanting to continue running at that level. So um, 
I just focused on my coaching. Um, and then uh, 2014, I wanted to run uh, – so when we had the bombings in 2013 in Boston, I wanted to run the New York Marathon because I'd never run the New York Marathon. And the New York Marathon was always the last marathon I ever wanted to do. Um, that was going to be my retirement marathon. And uh, so I reached out to New York, but unfortunately they had had um, uh, Hurricane Sandy come through and that had just completely destroyed New York. So they weren't inviting any elites. So I just assumed I was done. I was retiring. And then um, in 2014, uh, the uh, race, uh, the elite athlete coordinator, Dave Monty, um, contacted me and asked if I still wanted New York to be my to be my final marathon, which I was like, yeah, I, I would love it to be my, my final marathon. So I, I then decided off no training that I would do Boston Marathon because I could go back as the defending champion. Um, so I did Boston Marathon off eight weeks. Unfortunately, uh, I blew up at about 21K. I hobbled in in three and a half hours, but then I developed my second pulmonary embolism. So I ended up back in hospital again with another blood clot on my lung. Um, overcame that. I then came to Australia to run Gold Coast, which would be my final Australian marathon. Uh, did that. And then um, I went to, to New York and uh, I finished off at New York. So that pretty much saw out the end of my um, marathon career. Um, as a side note, I did do two other marathons after that. I ran a, another race at Gold Coast uh, in honour of my dad, who ended up uh, defeating stage four brain cancer. And then I ended up running uh, LA Marathon um, in 2018, and I ran that in honour of the uh, the young guy that I coached, Jonathan Gray, who committed suicide. So um, my running certainly finished at the end of uh, 2014, but I did those other two just as um, as a token of respect and appreciation for those people. And so yeah, um, but back to your point, I, I was still running, um, coaching, uh, finished at Boston, knew that we had two more years to go until. Um, we got to the U.S. Olympic trials. I was coaching a young girl called uh, Laura Thweet and a, an athlete called Sean Quigley, um, and they were who I was banking on to to make the Olympics. Uh, unfortunately, Sean was sixth or seventh in the Olympic trials in LA, so we missed out. And then uh, poor Laura was uh, was fifth in the in the 10k, and so she missed out on making the uh, the U.S. Olympic team for Rio. So. I had then, uh, when I retired in 2014, in 2015, bought a running store. So that sort of changed the decision of we were only going to stay to, to 2016, you know, in that 2014, 2015 period when I retired and bought the running store, we thought it would be much longer and we would be here long term, particularly beyond um, the Olympics in 2016. Um, but then that all turned pear shape uh, in 2018, um, as I said, with... Um, uh, me losing my license for the running store um, and then uh, the young kid committing suicide. But, you know, I, I hung in there because we decided that we would see out till at least 2020 and then see what we were going to do. And then 2020 has been a different beast, right? You know, uh, my uh, athlete qualified for the Olympic Games, so I finally got that US athlete that uh, would be donning the, uh, the red, white and blue. Uh, but then we've been hit with the pandemic and... Uh, that's meant that the Olympics is now going to be in 2021. So um, we're not sure right now is what we're going to do as far as um, our time frame of being in the US because we were going to make that decision uh, here in 2020. But now that uh, Jake's going to 2021, the World Championships are in Eugene in 2022, 
and then Paris is in 2024. Um, that's changed things. So um, we'll possibly stay till 2024 now and uh, keep coaching because I think Jake can make a second Olympics. And, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. So nothing nothing has gone to plan. We were coming here for a year and we've been here for 11 years and we'll be here for at least the next three. Okay, yep, yep. Um, let's talk about uh, Jake Riley. I mean, I uh, picked up a... A, um, a live stream over here of that uh, of that trials race in in Atlanta. Um, obviously, um, it was a Rob had that winning lead out front, and then there are three guys coming in, yeah, with only two spots remaining, and uh, it was a fantastic finish. You must have been beside yourself that day. But uh, so let, let's first of all go back to uh, to, to Jake. Um, I know he had uh, he came to you after just overcoming or just had Achilles surgery, and um, just tell us about how that relationship sort of has unfolded. Yeah, Jake moved here. He'd been in another program. Um, had had Achilles Achilles problems since 2014. Uh, then uh, decided to move to a different state. Uh, so then he lost his um, contract on that team and then uh, was having got married, was having some marriage difficulties. And so just a lot of things just weren't going his way. And at that time, he was looking for different groups and options. And he'd seen that I had started the Boulder Track Club um, and then I was coaching Sean Quigley and John Gray and uh, Laura Thweet. And he thought that this could be a good option for him. And so when he got here, um, he certainly came here with a lot of baggage uh, and rightfully so. Um in that initial period, my job was just trying to unravel the layers that were on him. And, you know, I just talked to you before about the frustrations I faced as an athlete. And, you know, I, I built up all these layers of just anger, um, hostility, disappointment, um, you know, towards certain people, uh, towards the governing body, um, you know, whether rightfully so or not, it's irrelevant. That's just how I felt. And, one of the things that I really value as a coach is trying to take on the burden that athletes are facing and work through it with them. And I just said, like, this is the role of a coach and this is, I didn't have what that, that person was in my career. And so the training's the easy part. It's just really trying to work out what, what is, what's right with the athlete, what's wrong with the athlete, what can we fix, what's not fixable. And, so with Jake, there was just a lot of layers that I needed to peel back to get to the core root of it. And, you know, obviously the stuff with, in his personal life, I, I, I couldn't fix. He had to, had to deal with that. But, you know, he, we tried to get him back with um, his Achilles and I'm anti-surgery. So I wanted to do everything right. And when it wasn't getting to the point of recovering, then I conceded that, you know, this was the time to explore surgery and we went and spoke to a sports doctor and then spoke to the surgeon and we started the road back and the road back wasn't an easy road because obviously he's been running wounded since 2014 and all of a sudden we're in, you know, 20, 2017 and he's trying to make life changes. So, you know, he didn't have surgery until 2018 in May um, and then this was on the back of John having committed suicide in February and, you know, it was a, it was a tough time, you know, he had the surgery but there was nothing he could do right so he's got to have the surgery and he's got to have all this time where he's on crutches and or no he can't do anything he's got to lay flat but then he's on crutches and then he can start to walk and then he's got to do strengthening exercises and you know the list goes on on what it takes to come back from from that type of surgery and for me i was coaching a number of people but i was starting to lose grip of that coaching 
situation. As I said, I was uh, I was pretty much out to sea without a life vest, and I was just getting tired from from you know doggy paddling to try and find where I could end up. And you know, I just uh, one by one, you know, athletes started to look for for um, for other opportunities because you know they didn't feel that uh i could meet their needs just with where i was and with what i was dealing with and i don't know just as i started to come out of that space that i was in and jake was starting to come out of the space that he was in and that he could start to to walk run you know then run um it i was able to coach him because like there really wasn't um the workload wasn't that great um but we just eventually got to a point where he was back running and, you know, I just sort of said to him, I was like, look, you know, we, I don't really have much of a group anymore. I've gone from having 18, 20 kids down to like five. Um, like, what do you want to do? And he's like, no, no, no I want to stay with you. Like you've been with me through thick and thin and, you know, and, and I, you know, really thrived at that moment. And that really started the, the comeback for Jake. And it certainly created, um, enjoyment for me you know and something that i could put my interests in um that was outside of me um and it just went from there he he got better and better and you know he certainly wasn't at a point that he was comfortable with but i could see all the micro improvements that he was having um i think athletes just want one huge macro improvement but it just doesn't come and coaches have to see the little silver linings every day and i was seeing all that and we went into chicago and he ran 2.10. Um, he was the first American and it just changed his life. You know, it changed um, him as a person. I mean, I, I give credit where credit's due. You know, like he, he, I could strip the layers back, but he had to decide whether he was prepared for that to happen. And you can walk a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So Jake had to buy in to, to my philosophies and he did. And you know, he ended up getting a, a part-time job um, as an SAT teacher. So he's working with high school kids that are trying to get into college and he got a new girlfriend and life just turned around and I could just see bit by bit those bricks that were on his shoulder were just slowly starting to disappear. And Chicago was a culmination of just so much sacrifice and so much fear and trepidation, but all coming together in a beautiful moment. And you know, his parents were over the moon. I mean, like he was living at home with his parents. His parents had no idea when he got in a car what was going to happen. Like they they felt that he was in a dark place. And, you know, just, I don't know, I think at the time we both found each other and we both needed to invest into each other. And he got that result. And then that changed everything because then he was a an outside chance of making the Olympic Games. And, you know, he had always dreamed of making the Olympic Games, but he'd never been in a position where it could become a reality. And it reminded me of where I was, you know, like I dreamed of it and trying to make it a reality is a completely different, um, a different ball game. So we strategized and we planned out what I believed he needed to do to make the Olympic Games. And he never questioned anything and he did everything. And, you know, if I felt at training that he wasn't quite on top of things, I would change it uh, from week to week. And, I always say that this was the plan, but it was never set in stone because for me, I set a plan and it was always set in stone. It was, it could never be changed. Um, we put in all the work and we got to the Olympic trials and no one really rated him a chance um, and rightfully so. I mean, he'd spent a bit of time out and a lot of people felt that his Chicago performance was a, 
was a one-off and he came out on that day and he delivered with all guns blazing and he ended up fulfilling a, a childhood dream and he certainly made an old coach extremely proud and, you know, something that um, as a as I look back on my career with things that I've done as an athlete and as a person, that this certainly is at the, uh, is at the top of the tree. Yeah, yeah, no, look, incredible story, mate, and uh, yeah, it was uh, a fantastic result and just... Hopefully that uh, Tokyo goes ahead next year and he gets to uh, to finish off that off that journey. But like I said he's uh, still thinking of, um, or you guys are still thinking of Paris in 2024. But yeah, it'd be nice to uh, for him uh, to compete over there in Tokyo. Um, to- talking about about the COVID thing, like are you guys just sort of having to work from month to month sort of plan, or like how far can you can you get ahead with with uh, with where you're at at the moment? It's really a day-to-day plan. I mean, yeah. uh, this all started in March and we're now in July and the world's no better off than uh, than where we were. Uh, we had planned, you know, for the Olympics that had fallen apart and we'd set for a number of races. And then when that, no Olympics, we set ourselves up for New York and that fell apart. And it's been really hard. You know, we've got athletes around the world that are either frustrated and disappointed and are doing nothing and using this time as a break or they're extremely motivated and they're training hard. And, it, and neither way is wrong, right? It's what is best for you and what helps you mentally deal with this unprecedented time that we're in. And so with my athletes, you know, Jake took a bit of extra time because he, he was banged up from the, from the marathon. And then the others wanted to get into like just doing some time trials. So I set up um, just some informal group time trials. And then it sort of grew from that because then I had a guy in another state say, hey, do you think your guy would be prepared to race against my guy? Like, I'll get him to run and then your guy run and we'll compare times. And I was like, well, I've got a better idea. Why don't we link this up on Instagram? We will time it so that our timers are spot on and we both go at the same time and we'll film it and people will see a split screen and I'll commentate and you commentate and let's just see how it goes. And from that, we did a guy's race. We did a girl's race. Uh, we then did a teams race against NAZ Elite, which is a, a professional team in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Then on July 4th, we did a race with Jake Riley against Jared Ward. Uh, then yesterday, our team did a race off against Hanson's Brooks. And, you know, there's a lot of variables, like some are at altitude, some aren't. Some are running on a point-to-point course. Some are running on a loop course. Some are running um, on gravel. Some are running on pavement. But it's, it, it means nothing. It's just giving the athlete something to race against, but then also race against themselves. And also for our fans of the sport to actually watch something because there's nothing on. And so we've started to see now teams take the initiative of using platforms to highlight what they're doing so that spectators, fans, sponsors can still stay engaged. And I've been challenging teams you know in a really positive way of get out there and do these things like it costs nothing to film it on facebook costs nothing to film on instagram use your creativity like have race-offs with people within your own team um you know have handicap races of men versus women um i want to create a, a race situation of my guys versus some guys in australia you know, and I'll speak to someone like Bruce Scriven or someone like that. I mean, Bruce won't know what Instagram is, but I'm sure the athletes that he coaches does. But it would be great to sink in a time in Australia and a time now where both teams could be racing off against each other and we're just filming it um, for everyone to see. So 
it's it's tough because there's no light at the end of the tunnel right now, and we don't even know if the Olympics next year is going to happen. I mean, we like Australia might get some events going over the summer, but I I can't see any events here in the winter happening. Um, I doubt World Cross Country in Bathurst next year is going to happen. I mean, how can you have some countries that are going to be on top of COVID and other countries not? And the only way you can do that is they're all going to fly in 14 days before and they're all going to have to be housed. And who's going to pay for that? So, you know, it just there's, there's more questions than answers right now. And so my job has just been how can I create creativity and inspiration for my athletes to justify them still doing the training? Because before we know it, this is going to be over and then races are going to be resuming. And if you're taking your foot off the gas and you're not doing a lot, you're going to be playing catch-up. So, you know, the great Craig Mottram said that, you know, between where you are with fitness to where you need to be super fit should only be three to four weeks. So I've sort of got my athletes at that point where they don't need to be super fit, but they need to be fit. And then the day that the gates open and we're ready to race again, they should only be three or four weeks away from being in prime fitness and ready to race. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's um, certainly... um. I feel is definitely what you should be doing. And obviously a lot of people also um, taking advantage of time out to maybe work on the weaknesses, um, work on the, the cores and the gym and the, you know, getting in there, lifting the barbells and doing all those sorts of things they normally normally don't do. So I guess you've got to, you know, look at the silver line and try to work on, on those things as well. And it's also not something else to, uh, to focus on rather than just think about the racing that you're not doing. Yeah, I mean, this is a time that we, we need to be positive. And, like, mental health is such a big thing for me uh, today just because this is where we're going to see the making and breaking points of of athletes. Um, You know, there are kids that didn't get to graduate from high school and they're probably not going to be getting into a a college of their choice because they didn't get to run a national meet that would motivate a college. You know, a kid that's in his last year of college has missed a sponsorship opportunity because they didn't get to run nationals to impress a sponsor for a professional contract um we're very lucky we just signed a contract with on running for jake riley for the remainder of his career but that's an anomaly because a lot of companies aren't signing at the moment because they've just furloughed all their staff um it's a tough time and this is where coaches and mentors have to think outside the box like they've really got to think of what's what's the right decision for the athlete and if an athlete is just like i want to go gung-ho because i'm so angry Look at where there's a compromise on that because they're going to get injured and they're going to get injured for no reason, but they've got frustration that they need to release. So what can you do to to help them with that? And then, you know, the athletes that aren't doing anything, how can you inspire them to at least do something? Um, How can you get them to feel better about themselves, to justify them still training and believing in themselves that that work is going to have a benefit at the end of the day? So it's not an easy thing to do, but myself as a custodian and as a stakeholder of this sport it's incumbent upon me to have to do it um and so i'm up for the challenge to make sure that i can provide um sanity for for my athletes and be there as a resource for them um and it's not just my elite athletes i coach a number of recreational athletes and we've been doing like i set up a a fun run situation the other week where they could run a 5k 10k half marathon they all had to leave at a different five-minute increment so that we weren't all standing on the start line together. Um, 
but I gave them race numbers and I marked out the courses and they went and ran it and I set up drink stations for it and they come back and I timed them and it was just for personal pride that, you know, they got to go out and do something against themselves, like chase down a, a personal best um, on, a, on, a, on a course that they've done regularly. So um, whether it's been my recreational athlete and that's someone that runs two hours for a half marathon or whether it's my elite guys that run 61 minutes for a half marathon, everyone is going to have a mental component that's going to see the pendulum swing either good or bad. And we want to try to just see if we can calibrate it in the middle um, so that they can get something out of it and feel content about what they're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, fantastic. Uh, look, let's just touch on, uh, you were a self-coach there. You were obviously highlighted. You were big on getting treatment and massage to keep yourself in shape. Um, obviously, something Sean Crite, um, you know, was a bit advocate of as well. Um now, there wasn't as many recovery modalities around in those days. Call it, you know, I guess your old school way was just get out there, do the work. These days, it's all about so many different recovery modalities and, you know, running with GPS devices, data coming from every angle, nutrition, shoes, all those sorts of things. Um, how much of that do you uh, sort of instill in, in, your, in your coaching today? And if athletes that you train want to take that on board or what sort of advice do you sort of give there? keep it simple stupid the kiss theory i mean we jumped in ice baths and you know use that as a recovery um you know we stretched you know we got massage we got physical therapy we knew what we had to do from a diet point of view um today we are oversaturated with content you know like from theraguns therabands you know um as you just said modalities of like um uh, rolling items you know from foam rollers to balls to um like you name it like and then looking at what we need i mean you know there's the keto diet and there's all these different things and you know from formulas with hydration you know back in the day we used to have staminate you know because it was high in a sodium concentration which is what you were going to deplete when it came to a marathon um there's thousands of products and everyone's trying to up someone right so everyone's trying to come out with i've got a better product and if you did that well then we've got you know the version two which is a much better product you know Kids are spending hours on this and they're forgetting the fundamental of just get out and train. You know, like if you're eating from the five food groups and you're hydrating and you're getting out there and you're getting an ice bath or you're getting a massage and you're getting the work done, you have pretty much completed what is required to be a good athlete. Um, I see people turn up to the track and they'll spend 30 minutes doing all that stuff, trying to get out there and like I'm 47 and I could beat them. You know, it's just, it's, it's stupid to think how over-exaggerated a lot of this is. And it's like trying to find the niche of, of what you have, what is it that you need? No, it's pointless looking at everything. You know, it's like people that want to go out and buy the AlphaFly. You know, yes, the AlphaFly, we believe, is a performance-enhancing tool, and we've seen it because there's just no way everyone around the world can be running as fast as what they're doing. But there's no point to a three-hour half marathoner wearing them because that three-hour marathoner is unfortunately overweight unfit um probably hasn't put in the tra uh, the training that's needed but they're relying on the alpha fly to give them that that added advantage and i think that's the problem with a lot of athletes is they're thinking that all these things are going to give them a percent but they're spending their time on 20 different things to try and find 
one percent out of twenty, rather than just focusing on the, the the core part of what's needed, which is to do the training, to get the rest, make sure you eat adequately, adequately, make sure you're hydrating, and then also make sure that you're adding a couple of those items that you've talked about. You know, the modalities of helping you recover a little bit better, so that you're not as sore the next day. Yeah, no. Fantastic answer, mate. And that's why I asked the question, mate, because I, I trusted that uh, you you would say that, and uh, and more people need to understand that. Um, hopefully, it's it's getting through. But yeah, like I said, it's it seems to have got more complicated these days. There's uh, people's heads are spinning, and yeah, just get back to the basics. Um, yeah, keep it's like reading a training book of a of a famous athlete, and you're like, that's the training I need to do. Yeah. The bottom line is the training that's in there is the best training they've ever done. I'd like to see books with the worst training that they've ever done so people can actually look at it with a glass that's half full and half empty and then be able to turn around and say, oh, okay, well, then that's normal. But what happens is they see all this great training and they want to get out there every week and replicate it. I mean, mm. here in the U.S., mm. everyone that has graduated from college still continues to hammer their long run. Mm. And I, that's the one rule that I rip my athletes on is the long run is time on legs every single Sunday. And if you're going to run it hard, expect that you're going to be flat Monday, your training workout on Tuesday is going to be abysmal, and then you're going to be spending the remainder of the week trying to recover to come up for your Friday workout. The bottom line is don't redline it. Don't do it hard. It means nothing. But if you're doing a track workout or if you're doing a rep workout, those mean something because you're running against metrics as to whether that's time for a distance or if you're looking at trying to actually achieve a time on something. And so make sure that the workouts that are the most mandatory, they are effective, and the ones that aren't, they're ineffective. And that's okay. You just can't go hard every day. Your body's not designed to do that. Yeah, yeah definitely, mate, definitely. I, I think, I mean, there's, uh, like you said, um, you know, Sean, again, was, was big on the, the, the long, easy runs. And um, but I think where sometimes it gets a little bit um, confused for some people is, let's just use you as an example and these numbers are just for for a case for for just you know, uh, for, for making a point if you went out for a long easy run and you're averaging 420s okay now 420 for you may be an easy pace now they see that and they go oh wow because 420 for them is is quite a fast pace so they might go yeah but Trippy was doing his long runs fast look he's running 420s but it's 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 relative to what your race fitness is and your, what your race speed is so so and then they say, oh yeah, Deeks and Monas, they used to go out and do these long easy runs, but they used to they weren't easy. They're only easy for 10k. Then they used to smash all the hills. So there's always this, confu- yep. and they'll always say that. And they say, no, they say they used to run easy, but they didn't. But it's all relative to their fitness and their conditioning at the time. Yeah, we would like like so we'd start at it like 4:30 pace, and we might get down 3:45 on the odd day. We might get down 3:30 if we wanted to smash someone, but you know 3:45 and you average it out, and you'd be like, all right. We're averaging around 4, 4.05. Now, marathon, I'm running 3.305. So the, the relative component is I'm running a minute slower than what my marathon race pace is. These people are going out there, and there's only like about a 30-second differential. You know, and I'm saying a minute on the fast end of average, it could be slower. But these people are running way too close to their race pace, and every day is hard. And there's no recovery. And... The number one rule, I've, I've said this time and time again, the number one key workout that is overlooked is rest and recovery. 
and it's overlooked because it's too easy and it's seen as a weak way of confining your training. No one is ever going to judge you on your rest day or your recovery day. You're going to be defined by if you can do 10 400s in 60 seconds of 60 seconds recovery. And my athletes know, like I, I, I you know, know lots of people on Instagram and Twitter and you know um, Facebook, and I'm always looking at training leading into races, and I can get eight to nine out of ten runners and tell my athletes who I think is going to run well and who's not based on the training that they're putting out there. And the killer workouts, the killer sessions are the ones that usually kill the runner because you can't sustain it. And you know, you're out there just every week thumping it. Your body needs time to recharge. You know, it just if you just keep pounding it, it eventually gets to the point where you get a detraining effect and then everything starts to go south. You either get injured or you get sick and then you've got to take a long time off to then build yourself back up again. And training is quantified over 365 days. It's the effort that you put in today has got to be the effort that's required over the whole year. But that's not what we see. We see people wanting to go hard. They take breaks. They go hard. So we're seeing more of a pyramid style of training rather than seeing something that has a lot of plateaus in it. Yeah, no, no, definitely, mate. And, um, you know, all the greats, including yourself, say this. So I'm not too sure why people still feel like they need to go out and smash themselves every day. And I think some of that has got to do with this... uh, this Strava disease that happened years ago, and uh, everyone wants to do that killer session so everyone can see it. So, um, yeah. So- I know. Why. I mean, it, I, I was guilty of this myself. I mean, Deke was very basic in his approach. Mono was very basic in his approach. I ran 2.11 on debut, being very basic in my approach. You know, I had one little setback, and then from that point, I was like, no, 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 this is just too easy. If I want to be better, I need to train harder. So I started looking at what the Japanese were doing. I started looking at what the Kenyans were doing. That's why I started training three times a day. That's what led to me getting injured. And then when I realized I can't train three times a day, I started doing the Japanese style of training and I started running 250 kilometers a week. You know, and I was like my easy day was 16K in the morning, 16K at night. And it was because I felt that there was a, that there had to be another way for me to run 206. And the reality is, I think I could have run 2728 had I just stuck to what had worked for the first six years. And I was on a trajectory. I was getting better and better and better and better and better. And then all of a sudden, I got frustrated in 99. And I was like, I'm going to train harder. I'm going to prove to everyone how fast I can run. Surely there's got to be another way that's going to get me there faster. And I was guilty of exactly the same thing. Now, when I talk to my athletes, I preach that that it's about consistency over a long period of time. It's the cumulative effect of every day, of every week, of every month, over three or four years to get you to a point where you can then have a platform to leap off. If you want to keep changing training, chasing training, you're just going to end up with heartache. And that's what ended up happening to me. And I don't have any qualms in admitting that. I thought I knew best. And at the end of the day, I, I had a good career. I didn't have a great career, but I could have had a great career had I kept it simple, stupid. But it sounds too easy because we live in a complicated world of everyone, as you said, posting Strava segments, having an oversaturation of all these things are going to help you to run better. And then everyone's out there just flogging themselves because they've seen all these different things that have been printed that they need to do. The honest thing is just keep it simple. Easy is easy. Hard is hard. And as much as that sounds like it's a 1970s, 1980s catch cry, that's true. And that's why all the greats advocate for it, because they knew that when they ran well, that's what they did.
Yep. No, definitely, mate. Definitely. Um, look, mate, I reckon, I reckon, Trippy, you could talk for another couple of hours, mate, but um, <laughs> I'm I've got taxes to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it must be getting close to your dinner time, mate. Um, are we ever going to see you and the family back down under, mate? Because I, I feel like uh, the Americans are getting the edge having you over there. We'd like to have you over here coaching over. So, uh, well, I said earlier that, you know, uh, we're certainly looking at what the future holds for us after 2024. Yep. So I'm committed to um, uh, this Olympics and the 2024 Olympics. Um, at the moment, you know, I had mentioned before, we, like we lost our house and I had a bad business venture where we uh, lost a running store. And, you know, at the moment, I'm not actually confined to anything. I don't have an obligation or a commitment outside of my coaching that I have right now. Uh, we have talked about uh, potentially coming home. You know, it's one of those ones where we're like, oh, we're going to come here for a year. And then it was like, all right, well, let's make a decision after 2016. And then we got to 2016 and I already had the running store at that stage, so I couldn't sell it. And it was like, all right, well, let's wait till 2020. But then we didn't get the chance to talk about 2020 because the Olympics has now been pushed out to, to 2021. And there's no way I could leave Jake uh, in the lurch, you know, as far as that goes. But then the other, um, you know, issue that we have is my daughter is now starting high school um, and high school is actually year 9, 10, 11, 12. And so it was easy for us to have had the decision to potentially come home in 2020 because she had just finished middle school. So if we came home, she would start year 9 at high school. And year nine's not too bad to start high school, but starting high school in year 10 or 11 or 12 can be problematic as far as trying to fit in, trying to understand a new way of education when you've been so used to a different way of education. So um, in 2024, our daughter will graduate from high school. Uh, our two boys will be ready for grade seven, which is at the start of high school in Australia, which fits in perfectly for them. So the, the serious conversation of potentially looking for um, the opportunity to move home would be in that time frame, if not earlier, um, if something was to to happen to force us to come home. But you know, we we do not in any way, shape, or form um, uh, yeah, think of this as a as an op like this has been a growth opportunity for me um, to get out here. I mean, one of the key um, uh, contributing factors was that I wanted to make it here on my own. You know, I wanted to be in a country that's foreign to me. Um, no one knows me. Um, build up a reputation where. Um, it's not a handout. I mean, in Australia, I could have worked for a sporting company. I could have worked for an events company. Um, I don't think I would have had to have looked too hard to have got a job. But here in the US, that is not afforded upon me. I, I actually have to work to prove who I am. And that was really important for me. Um, and I wanted to, to prove my worth, that, um, that I'm good at what I do. And so I feel like that I've met that bar of what I wanted to do. And now it's more about just creating a few more opportunities, particularly for my kids, and then look at the opportunity to come home. And certainly what I've learned, um, particularly in the last three years, I do not think in any way, shape or form I could have learned that back home, you know, um, to have a business and to, 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 to learn the volatility of what being part of um, a franchise model is all about and learning all about, you know, the, the corporate structure. I mean, corporate corporatism over here is just brutal. It's an eat-dog eat world over here. And, you know, I learned the hard way. I'm just a guy that loves people. I wanted to build a business. I wanted to build an independent business. I had a, a great model. We had 
got a great following of, of runners and walkers of all abilities, but I didn't like the model that I had and I wanted to change it. And as a result of wanting to be different, um, I lost my license, lost my store, lost my house. And it, it's brutal, you know, and it was a hard lesson to, to learn and, you know, particularly to low that the house that I'd put all my life savings in, my wife had put all her life savings in, um, this was just a, an opportunity to further extend what we had done to build up a, a better portfolio, but also life savings, you know, down the road. To lose all that in, in such an abrupt and um, corrupt way, it, uh, it was tough, but, you know, I'm still here. And uh, to go through what I went through with, with the athlete that, that took his life, again, I've, I've never been through that. And, you know, to, to go through on so many levels of having to eventually deal with it and overcome it, um, to be in this position where I am now, like I wouldn't have got that back home. And so I'm very thankful for the challenges in no way, shape or form do I say that lightly. I mean, there've certainly been challenges in the 11 years that we've been here, but we're here and we've made it and we've worked hard and I'm very thankful for that. And I know when I go home that I can apply these attributes to be better in whatever chosen field I choose to do. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, look, I'm not really in the loop and you can, um, I'm not too sure how much you want to discuss it, but, you know, you, you're mentioning here losing the store, losing the home, you know, the crop away, all the savings. Um, can you explain what that's all about? Oh, no, so basically I bought a running store that's part of a corporate group. So you never own the store, you have a license to the store. And so they, they own the whole entity. So they own the name, the way the store is portrayed, uh, certain practices, uh, certain um, uh, prototype, uh, uh, protocols. And so I wasn't a, when I bought into the store, I wanted to own a running store. So I bought into the running store, you know, I thought this would be great. But as we moved along, that model didn't fit the model of where we live. You know, we live in a very affluent running town, you know, and one of the biggest running stores was in this town and it had to be different. The model had to be different. And I was working 100 hours a week for no money. You know, like I could pay my employees, I could pay my vendors, but I was working my fingers to the grindstone and I wasn't getting anywhere. And, you know, we're also in a day and age where people are now buying online. So the way you have to market yourself and the things that you need to do need to be different. You need to give a reason for the consumer to come into your store to spend the money that they're going to spend when they could get that product cheaper online. And so that's where training groups come in. That's where putting on races come in. That's where putting on events in your store to create the community all comes in. And it just frustrated me that I just wasn't getting any buy-in. I was doing all this work um, and they get a 10% royalty. So the more money you make, the more money they get, which meant that I wasn't getting any money. Um, and so it just became frustrating and I wanted to move in a different direction and I wanted to you know, look at an independent store that I would own and um, unfortunately contracts were signed and deals were done and that was the way it was going to be. So I have just finished a 25-month non-compete, which meant that I cannot work, run, advocate, volunteer, support or own a running store. Um, and so I've just had to watch the last 25 months of my life go by and we lost our house and, you know, because obviously that was our collateral to, to keep the store open and um, it was a tough. It was a tough way to learn um, business in America. Um, but you know, 25 months has come and gone. And um, again, I learnt a heck of a lot. And if I do go down this path again, I am certainly well prepared 
uh, to do things completely different in my way and take what I've learned to, to make it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that, mate. Um, oh, mate you're the person to actually know because I've never talked about it. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Um, look, mate, I'm going uh, to let you go, mate. It's been uh, fantastic talking to you, mate. I, I knew it was going to be a great, great chat. Um, really appreciate taking your time away um, from your family, mate. I think there's a bit of a budgie making a bit of noise in the background, mate. You've got a budgie pet there. We've got three budgies, a cat, a dog, and right on the back patio I see a squirrel that's trying to make its way to our front door. <laughs> so um, we're, we're really starting to uh, create the zoo here at the Troop Household. Yeah, yeah, awesome, mate, awesome. Mate, all the best for the future, um, running your uh, your businesses over there in, in Boulder, mate, and, and the coaching. Um, all the best health for the family, mate, and yourself. And uh, Thank you. Stay safe, mate. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much for the no, chat. Thanks so much, Troopy.